from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is John Small, and I am your host. And my very special guest today is Allison Margolin. She is a Los Angeles-based criminal defense and civil rights lawyer and one of the nation's leading experts in cannabis licensing and law. Allison has degrees from the Columbia and Harvard Law Schools. Wow, you're wicked smart. And has been named a super lawyer rising star seven times. Now Allison has a new book out called Just Dope, a leading attorney's personal journey inside the war on drugs, which is part memoir and part argument for a common sense approach to drug use and legalization. It's a great book. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thrilled to have you. Let's talk a little bit about your book. I, we have so much to talk to you about, but I want to talk to you because it's a, such an interesting story that you have. Can you take us back a little bit to the early days of your life? Some might know who your father is. You have a very famous father named Bruce Margolin. Maybe talk a little bit about who he is and what it was like growing up in a household with a dad like that. Yeah, of course. So I was born here in Los Angeles in 1977 to two criminal defense attorneys. And my dad, who people in the marijuana community, he's well known. Of course, outside of that, you know, we kind of have our own little, he's a legend definitely in the cannabis community. And he had already been practicing for 15 years. And he had started uh, the California chapter of Normal, which is the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws. He started in the early, I would say the mid 60s when he started practicing law. And he was one of the first lawyers to really build his practice on representing marijuana defendants. At the time when he started, he had two things that were very unusual in the history of the United States. One, possession of marijuana was a felony in Los Angeles and California at the time, which was possession of cannabis still is a felony in some states, even not for sale. But most states, simple possession isn't anymore. But there was a period in history for about... The 50, I would say 40s, 50s, depending on the place until the year, you know, the 2000s where simple possession was a felony in many places. In California, it was like that um, for about 20 to 30 years. And through my dad's lobbying and not formal lobbying, but through his activities as, you know, a vocal opponent of those laws, he helped change them to the point where we have now, which we can get into. But even though he had those views, I grew up in a very conventional setting in some ways. Other ways, it was very, um, let's say, conventional for LA standards, but not for the rest of the world. And so I grew up like mostly, so my grandparents on my mom's side lived like minutes from my dad. My dad moved into Beverly Hills so I could go to school here, even though he was, you know, he's known for his marijuana advocacy, but he was also personal friends with two um, very famous Harvard-related people, Timothy Leary, who he represented for his escape trial in the 70s, who was a professor at Harvard with Richard Alpert. Um, And they were professors of psychiatry at Harvard in the 60s who had ended up getting actually thrown out of Harvard for experimenting with psychedelics amongst the college students. And it was supposed to be limited to the graduate students. So they got thrown out for that. And my dad, when he ended up briefly retiring from practicing law in the early 70s, he ended up meeting Richard Alpert, who later became known as Baba Ram Dass and Ram Dass. He met him in India and my dad had just read Be Here Now. And my dad, he took my dad and my dad has a book coming out probably in the future. We'll get more into this, but I think I did at least, I talked a little bit about this, but my dad went to India and traveled to India and ended up becoming friendly with the guru of Ram Dass, Neem Kroli Baba, who my dad is still a 
Devoteyev, although he's not in his human form anymore. And after being in India for eight months, uh, Neem Kroli, I guess a friend of Neem Kroli was Timothy Leary through Ramdas, and they told my dad he had to go back to being a lawyer because Timothy Leary had just been charged with escaping from prison in San Quentin, and they want be they wanted my dad to be Timothy Leary's lawyer for that trial. So he came back after his brief hiatus in 1972 and practiced again. And then my parents met in 75. My mom was as like an intern for the city attorney's office, which is kind of funny. It's like the local prosecutor. But during the 70s, the prosecutor's office was more like how it is today. I'm very excited to say, which was very was progressive. So she was in the city attorney's office, which is like the misdemeanor uh, prosecutor's office as like, a I don't know, she was probably a legal intern. She ended up becoming a lawyer in 75. So then my parents ended up marrying for a brief period and practicing criminal defense together. They got divorced when I was two. And then my I, my dad, like I said, lived like within minutes of my grandparents' house and my grandparents on my mom's side who were Holocaust survivors. Um, probably I was with them more than anybody growing up. I would go to school in like Beverly Hills and then I would go to their house after school. And uh, I was the only grandchild. And they were both from Poland, um, but... At the time, Poland before World War II was socialist. So even though they were both, I would say, pretty conservative living people, both my grandparents were, by today's standards, very left, but just typical Democrats at the time. So, but not just Democrats, people raised where, like, where there was legal heroin use, like people would go to their doctor to get drugs maintained. Even though my grandmother never even smoked weed, she had the experience of going to a doctor who was also maintaining drug addicts and like, right after World War II. So that was very important, I think, in my upbringing as much as my... And my dad's views, of course, influenced me, but then having grandparents who... And an entire family of the same political persuasion, obviously was... And then also, you know, told me that my... Kind of to them, being Jewish was basically about doing things for other people to help the world. So that's what the deal was. And that's... uh, So I grew up partly in that and partly in like kind of the marijuana world and, you know, staying at my dad's office with his very diverse clientele. But when I was really young, I was uh, I was very straight and I like banned my dad from smoking weed around me when I was 12 to probably like, I don't know, 15. Okay. So I shouldn't be upset that my daughter does the same thing to me now. She's 12. Oh, no, it's fine. It's good. The thing is that people don't understand. Oh, just, you know, and we can get into this. I have a whole chapter about my daughter in the book. But I mean, I think if anything, you know, obviously being honest with kids about stuff is helpful. And then whatever you do, they usually find to be not cool and if anything, anathema to being, you know, the opposite of cool. So early on, you have this, you know, you're around all, surrounded by all these people, all these different influences. You know, at what point did you decide, you know, this is going to be a mission in your life? This is going to be your career. I mean, was that early on in your life that you were going to follow kind of someone in your dad's footsteps, even in your mom's footsteps? So when I first, I wanted to be a writer and that was my first dream. And so like why I wrote the book, that was my first dream. And but I was very straight and studious and I had to work harder than even like, I wasn't like a genius. I had to work three times as hard as like my peers who got the same grades to do, to get the same grades. So I didn't really have like much, you know, going on the way of material for my writing career because I was like studying since I was eight. I gave up gymnastics when I was like eight to study till like midnight. And then that was me till I was like done with law school. But when I started the D.A.R.E. program and then I already knew about my dad's advocacy. And at the time, this is like 1985. And something that my dad wasn't focusing on, but he believed in was the legalization of all drugs. He was focusing on the weed issue, but I was seeing like, I was hip to the issues. At the time, my dad was friends with Chris Conrad and Mickey Norris, who are, they're pretty famous in the marijuana community also. And they wrote like, they wrote the first book that was kind of like an underground book called Shattered Lives. 
about people suffering from mandatory minimums for other drugs other than marijuana. And they started actually like kind of bringing that, that issue kind of into being. At the time when I was growing up, there was because... So like in 96, I was like 16. So at that time, there was the medical marijuana movement and the AIDS community and the activist community around that had really, really been important in bringing that about. And there was a desire at that time to kind of like remove marijuana from the criminal justice world, like talk about it for AIDS patients. Don't talk about how people are getting mandatory minimums and all this stuff because they wanted like the public to look at these things as totally different. Well, I started like as a, even though I wasn't like hip to all the news of the world, I was very aware of this situation with the mandatory minimums and cocaine. And I realized that this marijuana was a criminal justice issue, which of course my dad had talked, that was his thing. But I also realized that other drugs, there are all these other people going to prison for 20, 30 years for other drugs. And that seemed wrong to me. And because of that, even though I really didn't want to do what my dad did, because one, I thought he was kind of strange and I didn't want to be like the same as my parents because that was just like lame kind of sounding. But then I realized that the mission definitely wasn't done yet. And in fact, this whole, you know, heightened criminalization of quote hard drugs that occurred from the 80s through, you know, it's continuing, but is starting to change. Um, this is something that started that, you know, the mandatory minimums for like cocaine and crack was like in 85, 86. So I had always been kind of like, I kind of had like as a young child, I definitely, let's say romanticized protest movements. So I kind of thought at first I'd like missed my time on that. And then once I realized that this drug war was just starting on all these other drugs, I knew that my dharma, even though I didn't want to be like my dad, I knew that like, I just knew, you know, I was, was your calling. I knew my dharma was to figure out, yeah, that how to end that. And I talk about it in the book that when I was like deciding to be a lawyer or if I should just forget that and, and, and stick with writing. And my mom, you know, said to me, do you want to free people? And I said, yes. And she said, do you like nice things? And I said, yes. And so she's like, well, you have to go to law school. So that's pretty much the story. But I did know that was my, you know, both of them were kind of early came to me as what I was supposed to do. You have your own history with addiction. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the book opens with like a horror, like probably one of the worst days of my life. Um, but good material for a book where I am basically about to go into court with my dad. It's my dad's case. So it's not like my case. I had no legal responsibilities that day, but my dad, the day after I was sworn into court, it's sworn into the bar. He wanted me to go to court with him. And um, instead of going to court, I ended up staying in the car because I had like a gram of Coke on me. So basically like from, I would say, so I was very straight until I got to law school. And then the summer before law school, I, first of all, hadn't really like experienced much of life. and. I figured like I got into Harvard and now I can start like experimental with life and I can't like wait till I'm like old. And I've obviously been somewhat obsessed with drugs since I was like a young child. And, and I mean, young child, like 12, 11, 12, but not in terms of doing them, but the whole about them, legalization, then, and also just kind of like, of course, living in LA, it's hard to like, now I never, just, it was an interesting point. I never saw any drugs until I wanted to see them other than weed, like people smoked her, but I never saw cocaine in the bathroom at Beverly Hills High School. I never saw any other drug until it was something that I wanted to see. So that's something kind of of note. And I didn't want to see drugs until I was like, got into law school. And it was the summer before I started Harvard and I started doing, that's when I started doing ecstasy. I didn't even do coke till like the following summer. And then during law school, I did it during my times off, but it was still in a way that I was definitely say is abusive because like not wanting, you know, a couple of days, a couple of days of the weekend at a time. I never did it during work. I never did it for work, but it was a very hard life. <laughs> and after that, 
accident happened. I ended up still doing it for a couple more years, actually. But part of the reason, I mean, well, first of all, like I said, I always wanted to be a writer and I thought this was like the material. But in terms of like why I think this is important for people is that I talk about in the book, my mom encouraged me during that time that even though she really didn't like my lifestyle, that I could still be a great lawyer and not to like think like, Kind of the traditional way of being is like, oh, I'm like a drug addict. So like my whole life is like going to be ruined. So like you kind of, one can enable the other because you're, and so in my instance, my mom who was, you know, said to me, you can still be a great lawyer, like this is fucked up. And she was upset at me very and worried about me all the time. And like during that time, even though like I was, let's say a weekend warrior, but not in any way that's like glamorous. I was able to win trials. I won, like, I was able to be, you know, profiled in the LA Times, the front page of the Daily Journal, the law newspaper, and I won a bunch of cases. And what's cool about this too is that, like, studying my whole life, like, allowed me to actually, like, have an easier time maybe than others in practicing law. And, like, I'd studied my ass off since I was eight years old. I did mock trial in law school. And so all that stuff kind of, like, paid off. So I was able to, like, do this, but also it was my, mentality that I thought I could still do it in spite of like my problems. And then I ended up fortunately like leaving my ex-husband and that just that alone, like that changed my entire uh, situation. I was already on the track of like getting sick of the lifestyle when I was like 28 years old, you know? And then as soon as that happened, I never went back to abusing it. So, and actually a lot of the research we talk about in the book, it shows something that people don't know, which is there's no such thing as a quote addiction gene. And what it is, is like the path there is, epigenetic inheritance of trauma, which then can make, you know, which can lead to all such different types of behaviors, drug abuse, which is one of them, but also the idea that it's like not, so that also undermines the view of it being a disease. And that's, and that, and really the real thing is that it is in your mind, like every, I mean, your mind can control it. I mean, and there's studies I talk about in the book, the most famous of which, which hasn't been replicated because there just hasn't been the context for it, but um, the Vietnam study which was a study done, it's been reinforced over the years, but not replicated, which basically was a study of Vietnam veterans when they left Vietnam. And in the end, only a very small percentage ended up maintaining their drug addiction right afterward. Most of them were able to clean up before they left and then ended up not being drug addicts. It was like 3% or something when they came back and continued to use heroin. And I think it's important because we all think of heroin as like almost like not just physically addicting, but almost having like claws, you know? And the reality is that a physical addiction even alone doesn't mean you're quote addicted because people can still decide to overcome that with their mind. So that kind of, that's, I think that's really important for people to know. What about that experience? I mean, you're just experiencing your career has informed how you think about the war on drugs. It didn't really inform it at all. I had already made up my mind when I was 12. And I would say instead that my knowledge about drugs, addiction, and the law allowed me to overcome the addiction and also do well because I knew enough to be able to do that. But I mean, I knew this, like I haven't really changed my opinion since I was 12 years old. Everything I've done and learned has reinforced it. And now there's a lot more evidence for it, but I already, I pretty much, like I had it, I pretty much had the same viewpoint for that long. And And what is your view on the war on drugs? It's just wrongheaded, and it's it's the it's the wrong approach. I mean, maybe it, maybe it would help us to even to help people understand what the war on drugs actually is. Can you talk a little bit about? So basically, the idea of the war on drugs. So the war on drugs in the book means the criminalization of drugs, meaning certain drugs that are not allowed through pharmacy. You know, we're talking about all drugs here, but in terms of like 
the war on drugs, we're talking about the drugs that through the time have been at different points prohibited except through prescription or sometimes all completely prohibited. So the war on drugs, I mean, the first laws against drugs actually started in the 1800s in the United States. And it was actually against Asians, which is something that's right up with, with what I'm doing right now, which we can get into. Um, and it was the criminalization of opium dens and in San Francisco. And before then, there was no such thing as there were no local laws um, really against drug use. People had, they grew poppies, they like they harvested them, they kept them in their like ranch bathroom. When you read books from the time, there weren't really like addiction problems that people talked about. But then there was this when many Asians started to immigrate to the United States in the 1800s and replaced Americans as workers in the gold mines from San Francisco way up on north and in you know many other areas started passing laws aimed at discriminating against Asians so that the lazier and let's just say the lazier Americans would have jobs. And that was the start, the genesis of the war on drugs, and then continued through the modern day as simply a vehicle to oppress minorities and political dissidents. At the, the During the entire time of the so-called war on drugs, people who were connected and rich were given permission either explicitly or implicitly by the government in one way or another um, to do anything, anything that they wanted to do. And... You know, up until the early 1900s, the Sears catalog sold a, you could buy from Sears and like order it like a hypodermic needle with a liquid cocaine and heroin. And it wasn't an issue. And then, you know, with the, with the criminalization of opium came, evolved. And also with the expansion of the federal government's role, which in the early 1900s, the only way that people in, let's just say, legal philosophers and people in government thought they could justify anything in terms of regulating drugs was in terms of taxation. There was no idea of interstate commerce, which now is the foundation of our drug laws, getting to the idea of the federal government controlling um, interstate commerce to that degree that it could regulate drugs. So the first drug laws nationally started as tax laws, and then they evolved into, and then there were these local laws that were evolved under kind of like the idea of uh, local governments being able to have police powers. But the whole point was to be able to oppress people. And then during the 20th century, as Jim Crow ended, it became the vehicle for basically the incarceration and getting rid of as many, you know, Black people as possible. And something that happened that's kind of crinkle into this is that at the same time as this is happening, the genesis and like the evolution of the 14th Amendment, which is equal protection clause, was that in Black communities, lynchings were happening all over the place and there was no enough law enforcement. And so Black communities were seeking more law enforcement in their communities in the hopes of stopping lynchings. So in the 80s, when these things kind of started to collide, the Black Caucus in Congress was in favor of, for example, the crack and cocaine disparity, which is, you know, crack is treated as like 100 times cocaine under the federal sentencing laws, because there had been this traditional idea that the Black communities had been abandoned by law enforcement. So that kind of created, I would say, a perfect storm that led to the incarceration of hundreds of thousands of people and still does from the 70s, 80s through today, mostly Black people and Mexican people and people of color. And of course, there's white people that get involved and many of my clients are white, but that doesn't change what the motivations are by the different actors. Well, yeah, let's talk about your firsthand, you know, advocacy for these people. You are right now working on a case in Mount Shasta. Can you explain what, what's going on and who you're representing and, and what the problem is here and what you're trying to solve? Yes. So it's very fascinating. And it actually goes back to the genesis, as we just talked about, of the war on drugs, because it involves 
Northern California, white supremacist community that was, this is the area of the gold. So Mount Shasta and Siskiyou County is where the gold rush started, really. In addition to San Francisco, this was an area at the border of California and Oregon. And this was one of the first areas to discriminate against Asians and where Asians first came into the United States. So since the 1800s, the county has done various at different times, you know, used different types of laws, I would say, to discriminate against Asians. In the 1800s, there was a famous case from the U.S. Supreme Court called Yip Lo versus Hopkins that said that discriminating against Asian Americans violated equal protection when there was discrimination at that time against Chinese launderers, all these crazy laws that really made it illegal to do laundering, which was a, a big economic activity for urban Chinese in the 1800s in San Francisco. So kind of taking that history forward, in the mid-2000s, many people of Hmong descent, and Hmong people are very interesting. They are people who are, by and large, citizens of the United States, and they became citizens of the United States because their tribe, their fathers themselves, actually fought for the Americans in the Vietnam War in 1916, what was called the Secret War. So before the Vietnam War, before the Americans were brought in, the CIA recruited a tribe of people called the Hmong, H-M-O-N-G, which were peoples that were had a history of fighting with China. And they were people who mostly cultivated their own vegetables and fruits and lived in the mountains and also were not converted to Christianity. They were, we might say pagan, animists, I think is like animate, this type of religion that was more of a, you know, pagan type religion. So the CIA recruited the Hmong and recruited, I mean, people from age 12 and beyond. And it was called either the secret war, the children's war to keep the Ho Chi Minh Trail open. And once the American advisors, you know, started coming to actually like help the Americans when they were being shot down and take them out and nurse them back to life. So they made a deal with the leader of the Hmong at that time that if the Americans were not successful in Vietnam, that they would allow the Hmong to resettle in the United States. And ultimately, of course, that resettlement happened through years of having to hike through Thailand jungles and go to Thailand refugee camps and then ultimately come to the United States. But that happened to many. There's about 300,000 Hmong people in the United States. So at first, the Hmong people were placed in cities like Minnesota, Minneapolis, Fresno. And the Hmong people actually only had an oral language until the 60s. And that's the first time Hmong was even written. And they were people who knew how to mostly cultivate and do rural activities. So a lot of them had a really hard time in the urban settings, not being able to speak English, write their own language, and also not being familiar with like, you know, having completely different customs. So in about 2014, 2015, this very awesome community leader of the Hmong, I'm not sure if he was then, but he ended up becoming my client. His name is Muin Lee. He went up and joined many different Hmong people up in Siskiyou County where they had started to live. And in Siskiyou County, it's the Hmong people live in like an area that's several miles wide. They all ended up moving. And there's between between now one and 6,000 people there where everyone can do like communal activities together. They can do like there's a, in the Hmong culture, the funeral service is a seven day funeral service. So they were able to come here and kind of, as my dad says, who actually referred me the case that got me the Hmong, they were actually able to take advantage of the lifestyle they were promised by, you know, the CIA back in the 60s. So when they moved originally to Siskiyou County, the law in California was that you could grow marijuana if you had a medical marijuana recommendation and you were growing for yourself or other people as part of a medical collective. A county could still ban it without a license, but the state law allowed for defense to that. So... What happened when licensing came in 2016 is that there was a trade and there was a trade between the cities and counties and marijuana advocates. And the marijuana advocates basically had to agree 
in order to get licensing passed, that the cities and counties would have control over whether they were whether even they allowed medical or commercial medical or recreational commercial cannabis activity. So no county can ban a caregiver, which is someone who's like literally taking care of somebody for their health and then providing the marijuana up to five people. And no county really can no no county can ban a personal use and personal cultivation up to six plants for recreational or medical, but they can ban commercial for anything. So the county, seeing that all these Asians had moved up there and being kind of a, this is a county that's known as like a bastion of white supremacy, where they started passing laws trying to basically zone away the Hmong people. First, they started passing anti-camping laws. And this is a place where people are like living in a rural area. Many people are like camping on their land and RVs and it's and Siskiyou County's code talks about like the right to farm and like basically the whole this is like one of these you might say before Trump like a libertarian type area they definitely think you should be able to do what you want on your land of course unless you're Asian that's kind of the motto there there's there's their anti-camping laws passed now are they upset because I mean yes because of the age but the Asian community have been there but they're they're upset also because of the growing of cannabis in those communities well, that's the, that's the bullshit situation. So here's the thing. They decided in 2016 that to outlaw cultivation. So they effectively outlawed all these people that were there, who, by the way, had increased the price of property in Siskiyou County by like 100,000, like from like 10 or 20,000 per acre when the monks started coming to like 100,000 per acre. So it was actually an advantage to the county, but they ended up, instead of taking advantage of the tax revenue and also of the fact that marijuana grows pretty readily in the environment there and also requires very little water, according to many studies, including the University of California, Berkeley and engineering firms that have been hired regarding this issue. So instead of doing that, they outlawed it and they outlawed cultivation. And meanwhile, this is a place where like all the people, like if you were working in the county, you're growing the, all the white people are growing wheat. This is not like, this is like one of these NorCal border of Oregon. Okay. So it's not like, and this is historically in the 1900s, like why, like what's going on there. There's this little tiny city, Wairika. It's like a ghost town. Then there's the city of Weed, which is one block big. And then Mount Shasta, which is where I like I have a place, so which is much more, much different. But there's nothing really going. That's what's happening. So that's the whole red herring. I mean, that's what they're saying. That's what the... So the lawsuit we have right now, so what happened was that they then outlawed cannabis. The Asians didn't leave. So then they went further and they outlawed water trucks on only the Asian roads, basically roads leading to the Asian area, and required a process to get a groundwater permit that was very discretionary. And why this is a big deal is because in areas up there. A lot of the people don't have their own wells and they rely on commercial ag sales, which is something that's been done for over 200 years in all of the United States, which is that people share water. So for example, in that community, there is an alfalfa grower who has a well where he pumps 768 million gallons of water a year for his alfalfa. He only uses 752 gallons million gallons a year. So he has 13 million gallons left over and was selling water to the monk, which we're talking about one to 6,000 people. And it's not, it's not anything like strange numbers and something that's historically been done. And the county outlawed basically required a permit that was so discretionary that it led to a violation of equal protection combined with statements by the county that were extremely racist against the monk. Um, we were able to get an injunction from a federal court in California, the Sacramento federal court against the county in joining, which means like blocking those two ordinances. And it's a pretty, it's like definitely the most exciting case I've ever had. The ACLU has filed a suit with the Asian American Law Caucus and a firm called Covington. They filed a class action related to this and they've been helping us with it, uh, with our suit for the last year. And what's really cool about that is that the ACLU and Asian American Law Caucus came on their own 
But Covington, which is this awesome law firm that's that's known for like being this very powerful firm that does a lot of food and drug law. My professor from Harvard has worked there since 1965. And I was able through him to get their, you know, to alert them and their nonprofit team to our case. And that's how they kind of came onto the case. And my professor, I think in the book, his name is Peter Barton Hutt. He's actually been the lawyer for MAPS, which is the Psychedelic Institute since 1980. Wow. So a lot of big, big name. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's really fun. And it's awesome. And it's and now I like kind of love it. Even I don't in my so I ended up getting a house there because I'm there quite a bit. And in my area, everyone around me is like a civil disobedient. So it also has like a lot of that flavor um, in certain parts of the county, which is like Mount Shasta. Mount Shasta is. Yeah, Mount Shasta is very liberal, right? It is, although they have a Republican mayor. But to change the vote there is very easy. We're talking 3,500 people in the city of Mount Shasta. So where are you with the case? Oh, we oh, in the case, we have like what's called a preliminary injunction against the county. And we're set for trial in a couple of years. And we're doing discovery, meaning like going back and forth. And they have to answer questions. Um, and we have to answer questions about different facts in the case. Um, but during this whole time, the county cannot enforce those ordinances. So we're kind of, we're that stage. And um, we got the injunction last September 3rd. And the issue now though, which is very fascinating, I'm very happy also to be doing something that's like related to this issue, but still a whole new area. The water area is going to be the next economic, the next issue, you know, and the economic justice and racial justice issue of probably the next century. So I'm like, I'm very excited to have moved to that. But the issue now is that the State Water Resources Board has issued curtailment orders which are orders to not basically to stop sharing water to other well owners in the area now. Men have already started a litigation against the cheap well owner that was the one who had that 768 million gallons. And so now we're like in this very, we're kind of trying to figure out how practically people are going to get water when now we have the State Water Resources Board issuing these curtailment orders. And it's, this has been kind of in the news the last couple of days. And the way it's portrayed in the press is as if the ranchers are out there like dynamiting their rivers and then diverting the water. It's That's totally a bullshit story. That's not what's going on. It's really an attack of the commercial owners who are giving or selling water to the Hmong, which is allowed not only under the federal injunction, in my opinion, but also under the State Water Resources Board orders, which they have like an exception for providing water for basic human living. So this is like a whole, it's a whole new area, but related, you know, this is kind of where this kind of racism of the drug war is going to kind of be, this is the next area where those same people who are still, you know, have those same kind of views are going to be pursuing legislation and kind of have the same effect as they do with the drug war. So I'm very excited to be involved with this. And it's funny, ironically, this is an area I never thought I would ever do is water law. And I never knew what is what, what, what it's called the riparian, you know, riparian rights or like river rights. I never even heard of a quote riparian right until I took the bar. And it was the only time in my career I said, I'm never going to use this. I never said that about anything, not math, not algebra, geometry, nothing. And I said it about that. And of course, the one time I said it, I was wrong. So it's very exciting. Yeah, it is. I and mean, Allison, thank you so much for sharing all this. What an incredible life you've had so far, and you're doing such great work on behalf of disenfranchised people. So thank you for that. All right. The book is called Just Dope. Is it available now? It's available August 30th, so less than a week. Uh, but you can order it now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's available in like hundreds of retailers across the state and across, sorry, across the United States and even in Canada, UK, Australia. But you can order it today on Amazon, pre-order it. And it has an ebook. There's a Kindle version. There's an audiobook version. And it's distributed by North Atlanta Books and Penguin Random House. And I'm like so lucky that I was able to get that going because 
they allowed me to write the book the way I wanted, which was like, which a lot of the publishers that my agent was like talking to, they wanted it to be like a Bible on drug legalization. And just so you guys know, and anyone can look it up, I already wrote a constitutional argument for drug legalization when I was like 20 years old. It's online. It's called On the Right to Get High. It's on the Harvard Electronic Library, Harvard Law School Electronic Library. And I did that. So if you want to see that, I've included some of my arguments in my book, but that's already like, I've kind of been there, done that. I wanted this to be like a memoir, um, which was my, that was my field also when I was in college was like creative, nonfiction, creative writing. So I'm very happy that I got to make it more fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for uh, having me. Thanks. Take care, Allison. Thank you. Bye. Well, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, head on over to greenentrepreneur.com for the latest cannabis and CBD news, thoughtful essays, tips, and insider tricks on how to succeed in the cannabis business, all that good stuff. And hey, if you like this podcast, do me a huge solid and go to wherever you may listen to your podcast and please rate and review our podcast. It does wonders for the algorithm, helps others find the podcast. Would so appreciate a review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.